Thanks so much for coming back this morning. I felt so thankful when I was done last night that we were able to spend those minutes together reveling in the uh, connection between the, the person of Christ, his infinitely valuable person, and, and the atoning work of Christ, and, and how those are the, are the roots of his demandings, and how that enables us to obey in some measure to the glory of God. I just felt so deeply helped by the Lord with us. So I'm going to pause and ask him to do that again. So let's pray. Father, I believe you came last night in a really precious way. At least I enjoyed your presence with your people. And I want to enjoy it again now. I have with Pat and the team singing that when you complete a work, it is completely done, just like Jesus said, it is finished. And we want to be there. We want to revel there. And we want it to so drench us that we hardly even have to think about changing because we're changed. We want these miracles to happen that we're going to be talking about in your demands. And so, would you come in mercy, protect us from the evil one, fill us with your spirit, may Christ stand by us, may we be faithful to the word of God, and may our lives be built up in faith, and may darkness flee and light shine and joy abound and hope increase and clarity for vision and guidance in life be given. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our overarching question as we talk about what Jesus demands from the world is how this piece of the Great Commission teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that's why all these hundreds of commands were gathered together teaching them to observe them, not just parrot them, but do them when they are as impossible as they are, like loving our enemies or rejoicing in, in persecution. How are we to do that for our children and our small groups and our churches and, and the nations? That's the big overarching question which I'm trying to do with the book and and with these talks and with my family and and, and my church. I just want to be an instrument in the hand of the risen authoritative Christ to do that so that more and more people render God-glorifying obedience to everything Jesus demanded that we do. So that's the big overarching goal. And we, and we gave a partial answer to how that happens by saying, in that teaching, we keep connected the glorious person of Christ, who is infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying in his friendship to us and his work in us and his work for us in history on the cross, keeping the commands connected with those things. And not being like liberal ethnic 
stealers and just snatching a command here and there and, and putting it to use for their business or their club or, or whatever because Jesus is such a great ethical teacher. He, 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 in fact, was a lunatic if all he was was an ethical teacher, C.S. Lewis said, right? Because he would be on a par with a poached egg going around saying things like, before Abraham was, I am. So you can't snatch out of his mouth a random command here and there because it fits your needs and say the person who said all these things about the Son of Man came into the world not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You can't say, ooh, I don't like that worldview, ransom, ugh, yuck, bad view of God. You can't do that. It's all one big package. You take him, you take his work, and you take then, rightly understood, his demands. And that's what I'm trying to do. I just want to get these demands right. I don't want to abstract them. I don't want to misuse them. I don't want to turn them into a club. In fact, when I think about the way I want to do this here, I am contrasting Jesus, and I hope the way... I'm doing it with the way the the Jewish leaders handled the commands of God. Listen to this. This is Matthew 23, 4. Jesus said about them, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Whew, just getting... You just vibrate when you see that use of commands, right? So all these Pharisees and scribes and elders were taking all these commands, 630 commands from the Pentateuch and just just dumping them on people and closing their hands and just watching them crushed and feeling superior. And Jesus said, that's not the way I do it. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. And we tend to say, you've got to be kidding. You said, unless somebody denies himself and takes up his instrument of execution and follows you, he can't be your disciple. What's light? What crosses through heaven? So that's, that's our challenge, right? You read the Gospels, you read the Sermon on the Mount, this doesn't feel light. It is. So we've got to figure this out. How do we understand the demands so that some wild statement like, my burden is light and my yoke is easy, works? So here's what we're going to do in this session, God helping us. I want to take some sample demands that I'm going to call foundational demands or basic demands or um, necessary to get first demands and, and get those and let them amaze us because when people think the demands of Jesus, they don't usually think these first and then ask how they relate to, uh, well, I'm going to, say, our behavior change demands, love your enemies and sell your possessions and give alms and so on, attitude changes towards people, don't be angry and don't hold grudges, those, those come 
But there's this, this cluster of demands that he gives that are amazing at the front end that make all of that different. And then once we've done that, that is dealt with these basic commands, we'll draw a line and we will step back and say, now how does it work that the connectedness with Jesus and his work that those commands produced affect all these other weighty, hard behavior change commands. That's where we're going. So I've got about six, and uh, they're all here, and I'm just picking some random ones that seem to fit together well in, in a talk. Number one, demand number one for the world, you must be born again. The most basic demand of King Jesus to the world is you are dead. You must be made alive. So John chapter 3 verse 7, do not marvel Nicodemus that I said to you, you must be born again. And then as if to make crystal clear what's at stake in verse 3 of chapter 3 of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, (coughs) he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you, you perish outside the kingdom of God if you're not born again. And then he explains the role of God's spirit in doing that. Because this is a command that is technically and absolutely And truly, without any hyperbole at all, impossible for human beings to do. You do not do it any more than a baby produces its birth. Verse 6 of John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what does that mean? Flesh is what we are by nature. It's a word for just human nature without any spiritual reality. If you just abstract God, spirit, Christ, spiritual life away, what you have left is a human being, billions of them walking around the planet who are, are just flesh. They're, they are what they are by their first birth. But that which is born of the spirit, a second time, a second kind of birth, is spirit, meaning now there's a a living spirit within. There's spiritual life within. My spirit has come to life. It was dead, now it is alive. And that happened by the spirit. Um, Jesus said in another place to confirm this worldview that there are dead people walking around and living people walking around. Remember he said, when a man said, I want, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my father first. He said to him in Luke nine sixty, leave the dead to bury their dead. So you got dead people who need burying and dead people who bury them. Got that? Leave the dead to bury their dead. That mean, that's just a clue. It's just a little window on his worldview of humanity. 
Ordinary people are dead. That is, they have zero spiritual life. Which means they can't tune in to God, Christ, cross, gospel with any genuine delight, appreciation, love, gratitude, dependence. It's all boring or it's all mythical. It's just of no interest. Or they might be religious and go to church and it doesn't move them at all. They're there for the fellowship and they're there for the cool music. But as far as spiritual reality, listen to them pray. It's not there. They pray just like unbelievers. God bless my day. Help me to get a job. I'll make my kid well. That's just the way an unbeliever prays. There is no spiritual sense of hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Break my heart. Exalt your name in my life. Transform my mind. Humble my pride. There's none of that in their prayers at all. They're dead. They're dead. Or to see it again in the mouth of Jesus, the prodigal son comes home. And his older brother is bent out of shape because he's dead. And the father says, this my son was dead and is alive again. Come on, into the party. Get life. Join us in mercy. That's life. Verse 8 of John 3 talks about the strangeness of this and how it happens. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the wind, you're standing there and suddenly, oh, there's a wind. I don't see it. I don't know where, where did that come from? How did that start? I don't see any fan. And that's the way people get born again. Why am I now needing Christ? Why am I now feeling conviction for sin? Why am I now desiring to go to church? Why am I now trembling for my eternal destiny? What has happened to me? God happened to you. The Spirit blew out of nowhere. You don't make yourself alive. This is very offensive to American, and I presume Canadian, independent, self-sufficient, take control, manage your life, human beings. To be told, excuse me, you're dead. And you must be born again. I command you in the name of Almighty God, be born again. It's like commanding the lame to walk. Like commanding the blind to see. It's like commanding the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. It's like commanding Lazarus to get out of the grave. For goodness sakes, that can't happen. I've got to be in charge. This has to be my free, autonomous, self-determining decision. Well, if you want to stay there, you stay dead. 
Lazarus did rise from the dead. But he didn't do it. And you didn't do it, Christian. I don't know what you've been taught about how you got saved. But you didn't do it. Your life is a gift. And it came out of the blue. The wind blows where it wills. We don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born by the Spirit. Which, which means, by the way, a little, little princess comes to my mind. I, I don't remember becoming a Christian. I don't remember ever being a non-Christian. I don't remember not believing. I grew up in a Christian home, and therefore I've never had one of those, you know, get-off-drugs testimonies. <laughs> but you know, you know how it works for me? To sing these songs. I mean, you, you may stand there wondering, why are these people lifting their hands? Why are, they, why are their eyes shut? Why are they, this is like, why are they like that? Because you don't, you know, remember anything dramatic. All you have to do is learn a doctrine like this and believe it with all your heart. John Piper was dead. I don't remember being dead. I was. I was. Whether it was four, five, six, seven, or eight years old, I was dead. Deader than any drug addict. And I'm alive. And now I watch myself. My indwelling sin is so manifest to me that all I need to do is extrapolate a little bit back to what it would have been if he had not intervened. So that the ongoing witness of my own abiding corruption is all I need together with this doctrine to say, I'm flat on my face thanking the sovereign Jesus for making me alive and keeping me alive. So the first command, the most basic command that the Lord Jesus gives to the world is you must have life. You must be born again. I admit it leaves you sitting there very helpless. How do I be? I mean, you told me it's a command. What do I do? What do I do? So let's just keep going. Go to command number two. Demand number two. I'm trying to pick the most basic, prominent ones in in Jesus. Number two is repent. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, here's what I want to say about this command. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the meaning of the word repent in the mouth of Jesus. Here's the main thing I want to say. It is not something that you, it is not. something you do. Just leave it at that. Well, what, what is it? Meta eo verb, or metanoia. Meta, alter, change, noia, mind, 
disposition, attitude. To repent is to experience a profound change in the way you view and value God and Christ and his work. It's like saying, change your view of me. Change your attitude toward me. Change your valuing of things so that I am central. It's not a, it's not a saying, do stuff. Stop sleeping around. Stop lying. Stop cheating. Stop stealing. That's not the meaning of repent. And I can show you that. Luke chapter 3, verse 8 goes like this. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Or ESV translates, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Clearly, fruit bearing and repentance aren't the same. Repentance has fruits. If it doesn't, it's not real. But it's not the fruits. And the fruits are all those behaviors. But if you jump immediately and say, Jesus is saying, change behaviors, get it? You will, you will, you will stay dead and change. That's how churches are grown in America. Dead people gathering together for all kinds of reasons other than desperate life has happened or I need. Good feelings while we're dead. Little, make my marriage better. Make my kids better. Make my job better. Change me, but don't tell me I'm dead. Don't tell me I have to have a metanoia, a metanoia that is an alteration of the way I think and feel about God and Christ and the cross. So my main observation about repent is just like with the new birth, it is the demand for a new inner reality. My mind, meaning my my whole soul, heart, mental, affectional thing there has to undergo a, the Old Testament rule for, word for repent is turn. But it's an inner turning. It's not first, like I'm walking and I turn around and walk, but rather I'm in, in my whole soul, I'm loving money. And I'm despising Christ. I'm loving myself and I'm hating the, the cross where I'm supposed to be crucified. That whole disposition's got to alter. And so Jesus is saying, repent. Have a different viewing of me and a different valuing of me. Number three, third demand. Believe in me. Believe in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John 14, 1. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 36. Now, let's bank here, camp here for a 
few minutes to make sure we see the bigger picture of why do we need to believe in him? Trust. Trust is another good word for pistuo. Trust me, he's saying. Trust me! And, and because you should ask him, for what? Why? What do, what do you mean, trust you? What, what, what is my situation and your accomplishment that I need to trust you, not me? I'm doing all right. I guess most people in Vancouver would say, I don't need to trust Jesus. I'm doing fine. Health insurance. Got a job. Got a family. Got a brain. Got a will. Got a car. I'm making it. So we need to ask, what what does he mean? Why, Why is he calling upon us? Trust me. You need to trust me. You need to trust me. Why? It's, um, it's implying we're in trouble. And he could get us out if we trust him. So we need to listen to It's like a fireman. I think this, this illustration is very help, has been very helpful to me and very inadequate. So I'll give you the helpfulness of it. And at the end, in a, in a minute or two, I'll, I'll give you the inadequacy of it. See if you can think it out. So you, you, you're trapped in a house that's on fire, and you can't get out. You, you can't. The smoke is rising, and you don't know which way is the door, and that looks like flame. And, and, and a fireman, just with one of these unbelievable gears on, just bursts through the flame, has this big tarp, and he throws it around you. He picks you up, and you're terrified. And he says, We're not going through that, are we? Yes, we are. And you are going to hold still. And you will not help me. If you try to help me, you will kill both of us. You must trust me and hold still. That's the picture. I love it. I love that picture. You're hell bound. And I'm coming into this mess of your life. And I'm snatching you up. I'm the only one who can do this right here. And you must hold still. So that's the part I like. Here's what Jesus said, why we need to trust him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Oh, ooh. Whoever believes, 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 trusts him, trusts him, won't perish, but have eternal life. And then you drop down to verse, that was John 3, 16, as you know. But people don't often connect John 3, 36 to fill out the picture and explain why we sing songs like we do. We think Paul taught this. We don't think Jesus taught this. But here's what he says in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son... Obey his command to believe. Shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, I see the fire. I see the house burning now. Jesus' worldview is not just that the whole world is dead, 
but that the wrath of God is resting, remaining on the world. And there's one way out. Believe me. I'm the only fireman who can get you out of the wrath of God. So the doctrine of propitiation, Christ removing the wrath of God by his work is not first Pauline. It's first Jesus. That's my condition. How did Jesus do it? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom. Who, what, what kind of negotiation is going on here? It's God paying God so that I, the offender, may go free at the cost of his son. That's the payment that's going on here. God's wrath, God's just and holy anger at me is satisfied by the son saying, Father, let it go on me. Some of you may have heard that sermon that C.J. Mahaney gave two years ago at Together for the Gospel on the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken And he used a phrase, those of us who were there will probably not forget. He said, it was the scream of the damned. God? No! 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 Don't abandon me! That's what we will all say in hell. Unless Jesus said it for us. Which he did. If you believe. That's our condition. That's the need for, trust me, trust me. Jesus' fundamental command is change your ideas about me. Trust me, repent, believe. Don't think of me any other way than this way. That's what turn and change means. Repent, get rid of all those wrong ideas about me, all those wrong feelings toward me, all that pushing away. And trust me, I'm here to save. Does that sound like a burden? Does that demand sound like a, I can't carry that command. (laughs) It's not a burden. It's a, Lifter up of my head. That's what the commands are. Believe. We need to say enough, just a little more about believe. What does it involve? Trusting him, believing in him? Well, it certainly involves um, believing facts. If you get the facts wrong, like if you say, he did not die and he did not rise, but I trust him. You don't. Facts matter. Really matter. But believing facts does not constitute faith because the devil believes those facts. He knows he died and he knows he rose. He knows it better than you do. So those constitute a necessary part of faith, but not saving faith. 
Well, what more is there to it? Um, One way to describe it is to say that it is a receiving of all that Christ offers himself to be for me. He says, trust me as Savior. Trust me as Counselor. Trust me as Guide. Trust me as Treasure. Trust me for everything I am for you. In in fact, trust me for all that God is for you in me. And when you start talking that language, faith becomes profoundly different than what a lot of people think it is. And the verse that helps me most in this regard is John 6, 35. It goes like this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes shall not hunger. Whoever believes shall never thirst. So I take it that believing is a coming to and an embracing and a receiving of Christ as my bread and my soul-satisfying living water. That's belief. If Jesus says to you, I have water for you, I am water for you. And you won't drink it, you don't believe him. You're not doing the act of trusting. Trusting is the drinking. Trusting is the drinking. When you drink Christ to your soul's satisfaction, that's called believing me. It's called trusting me. I think that's what Jesus means by it. John 1.12 to as many as received him, so now you get the word receive, he gave the power to become the children of God, comma, to those who believe, present tense, in his name. So receiving him and believing, ongoing believing of him are, I think, the same in John 1, 12. And they are the pathway into sonship, having God as our, our Father. So it's a receiving of what He Believe me, believe me means receive what I am for you. I'm your Savior. I'm your atoning sacrifice. I'm your treasure. I'm your Lord. I'm your friend. I'm your all in all. Will you have me? Have me. That's a command. Have me. Receive me. Trust me. Believe me. Now, do you see why the fireman illustration was inadequate? I've heard a lot of sermons and I've talked to a lot of people for whom the fireman illustration is pretty much all all their life. And it's why they're either not Christian or such weak Christians. Because they think, okay, I'm scared of hell. I got scared of hell when I was about six. And somebody told me he was like a fireman, and he'd come in, he scooped me up, and if I trusted him to get me out of the fire, he would get me out of the fire. Whoa, I don't like fire, and I'm happy to trust him. I'm out. See you, Jesus. Oh, oh, how inadequate. 
is that picture. In fact, I don't like you at all. From what I hear from the fire department, you sleep around on the weekend. You're not an admirable person, but I'm really thankful you got me out. I'll write you a note. And I'll mention you every now and then. Somebody asks me how I got out, I'll tell them about you. I don't like you. I don't want to live with you. You do not bring me any joy or satisfaction, but the memory is cool. So keep your distance. That's not faith. So the analogy is utterly inadequate because I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. It's totally different than that. Believing Jesus is as he carries you out, you look up into his face and you don't just see a competent deliverer. You see an all-satisfying friend. You see the king of the universe. You see the maker. You see everything you've ever dreamed about in him. That's faith. Faith is a receiving him for all that God is for you in him. Number four, command number four. And you see, you will see now how overlapping these are. Because the fourth one I'm going to give you is come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So come, 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 come. Jesus stood and cried out, John seven thirty seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. This is not a burdensome command. This is not a weight to be born. This is a weight to be lifted. John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Everything I say to you is designed to involve you in my divine joy. So come, come. Meaning, you're having a lot of fun and you think it's satisfying. You think it's joyful. Here's where joy is. Come to me. Come to me. That's why metanoia is required. Because a a dead person, an unrepentant person, looks at Jesus, looks at the television, looks at Jesus, looks at his iPad, looks at Jesus, looks at skiing and says, he's not better. He's not. Because they haven't been changed. They haven't repented. They don't believe. They're not born to new life. They prefer other things to Jesus. They're blind. Coming to Jesus is impossible for those kinds of people. Which is why Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which is another way of saying causes him to be born again, grants him repentance, grants him faith. No one can come to me. Or John 6, 65, 
No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. So, the demands are be born again, believe in me, repent, and come to me. Now, number five, love me. Love me. John 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does love Jesus mean? Oh, how many people jump immediately to define love in terms of um, decisions and behaviors. I had a, a professor in college who assigned the book Situation Ethics in an apologetics class by Joseph Fletcher in which I stumbled on the argument that everybody was being ooing and aahing over, namely, love is a decision, not an affection or an emotion, because it is commanded. And you can't command the emotions. And it was, whoa, fresh insight. And I was thinking, that doesn't smell right. I was just, you know, I was 20 years old and, Grew up in a Bible-saturated home, and all I could say was, didn't smell right. I couldn't articulate why it wasn't right. I said, you think that's cool? It doesn't smell right to me. Something goofy here. Well, what's goofy is, of course Jesus can command the emotions. And he does it all over the place. <laughs> I'm like, read your Bible, Mr. Fletcher. <coughs> which, which he didn't very much. At least not with faith. Well, we are commanded to fear and to be thankful and to feel remorse and to feel joy. Commands of our hearts are all over the place. If we ought to have an emotion and we don't have it, Jesus can command that we have it, whether we can perform it or not. That's how radical these commands are. So I don't buy the argument that the command to love Jesus must be a command to do some things or decide some things because you can't command anything deeper than that. I, I think it is way deeper and prior to decisions and performances. And I can show you a text that shows that. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not loving me is keeping my commandments, which I've heard sermons on. I've heard pastors teach that. To love Jesus is equal signs, is definition signs, is keep the commandments. That's not what the verse says, right? It says... If, if you love me, something will result. Commandment keeping will result. This isn't this. This is root. This is fruit. This is inner reality. This is external application and fruit growing out of this reality. So, so what's the reality? The reality is that we 
admire him, we enjoy him, we have an attraction to his presence, we um, have strong feelings of admiration for him. We have a gratitude for him. Let me give you a picture that Jesus gave. Remember the time he came to the Pharisee's house? Given a dinner, Pharisee invites him over. And this Pharisee was very self-righteous and very happy to have a a figure like Jesus for dinner. And uh, never didn't give him a kiss when he came and wash his feet. And while they're reclining at table, you know, they lay, lay on their elbow, their feet are stuck out like this, the table's probably this tall, spread, and a prostitute came in. This is Luke 7. A prostitute came in who obviously had had an experience with Jesus of profound kind. She bends down, her hair falls around, she's crying, and she, she takes her long hair and her tears and she starts wiping his feet. And the Pharisee just goes ballistic, right? He says, If you knew, if you were a prophet, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of a woman this is. And and Jesus tells him a story. Suppose there were two men. One owed their creditor $5,000 and one owed him $50, and he forgave them both. Which would love him, love him more, Jesus says. And the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the one that he forgave more for. You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with your tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And then he adds this. She loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So where does our love for Jesus come from and what is it? Our love for Jesus is a stunned, grateful, humble, amazement, admiration for his mercy toward us. And an affectionate drawing in, pressing in. To him. It's all about this inner reality of what's happened to us. We, we love Jesus because we've seen his amazing love to us. And we've seen the kind of person that is overflowing in love to us. And we're like this prostitute, if we're alive, who are saying, I just want to be near you. And I want to show you in whatever way I can, and I don't have much that my affections for you are very strong. That's way prior to and way deeper than behaviors. If you jump to behaviors, I'm loving him because I'm tithing. I'm loving him because I'm attending church. I'm loving him because I'm not smacking my wife around. I'm loving him because, because, because you don't know what you're talking about. This is way deeper than that. Way deeper. You must be born again. You must repent. You must believe. You must come to the fountain. And when you're at the fountain, you drink in mercy and you're just loving it. This is before you, this is before you move a muscle. Any muscle in your body. All these commands are being fulfilled before you move a muscle in your body. 
Last one. And then we'll do the gear switching for a few minutes. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. There's a command. That's Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice. This is a command. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. We are commanded by the king of the universe to be happy, to rejoice. C.S. Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased because we're not born of God. We don't repent. We don't believe. We don't come. We don't see. We're dead to the holiday at the sea. I'm, a, I'm the holiday at the sea, child. I know those mud pies you're making are fun. I know they are. They're called sin. I'm going to take you to a place where the sand is white and it stretches for miles the ocean is gentle and shallow. The sun won't burn you up. And you will be able to play in ways you never even imagined. Come to me. And so many people just look at their gutter and look at the Lord and they stay. Because nobody can come unless the Father overcomes their rebellion. When it says rejoice, when Jesus commands us to rejoice, is there any place for self-denial? <laughs> Mark 8:34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yes, there is. C.S. Lewis said the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, it does. If you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, that's self-denial, you will save it. And you want to save your life because that means eternal joy with me in heaven, on the new heaven and the new earth. So yes, there's self-denial. It's, it's, it, it, rejoice, deny yourself. Those are two commands in Jesus' mouth. And they're like saying, be cancer-free. Get the surgery. 
Self-denial is not a burden when you see it that way. My burden is light. The burden of my command for denying yourself is light. And the yoke of my command for you to deny yourself is easy when you see it this way. So now I shift gears. Move to the last little piece here. Okay. Those are sample, what I call basic demands. Be born again. Have You need life. You're dead. You need life. Number two, repent. Have everything in you and the way you assess Jesus turned around and change. View him and value him a different way. Number three, believe. Trust me. Trust me as treasure. Trust me as water. Trust me as bread. Trust me as savior. Trust me as Lord. Trust me as guide. Trust me as sex counselor. Trust me as financial counselor. Trust me as your goal in universe. <coughs> Trust me. Come to me. Number four, come to me. Don't turn to those other things. Come to me. Number five, love me. Cherish me. Value me. Admire me. Be grateful to me. These are all internal. We haven't moved a muscle yet. And then rejoice in me. Delight in me. Find me as your satisfaction. You have not yet moved a muscle. And he's all over you to be for you and to satisfy you and to forgive you. To take away the wrath of God from you. And all your sins get canceled out. Before you move a muscle. These are the commands. This is what Jesus demands from the world. And then the question arises, all right, there are other commands, however. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is different. And it is indeed. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good. Do, 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 do good to those who abuse you. That's a new category. And it is indeed in my My closing question is, how do these initial ones relate to those? Because what's happened here, by grace, is that now we've been united to Christ. His death has become our death. Wrath, he bore, it's gone from me. Forgiveness, sins he bore, I'm forgiven. I had uh, an idol that was feeling good and it was killing me and he stripped it off of me and he gave me himself and so I have him as my treasure. Sin's gone, wrath gone, Christ there, all without moving a muscle. All I did was receive, receive, receive. It was so free. It was bought by the new covenant establishing blood of Jesus and only when that is clear do these other commands begin to be possible. So let me just give you two examples of how they are possible, how they work, how the connection with Jesus actually works. Number one, um, the care and provision of our Father in heaven is secured by the blood of Christ through faith and unleashes radical love. It goes like this. This is John... um, 112, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay? 
children of God. So now we have God as our Father by believing. <laughs> He's not wrathful anymore. He's totally loving and caring and providing for us, all for faith alone. What, what effect does that have in Jesus' mind? Listen to this, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Next phrase. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves purses in heaven that do not grow old. Treasure that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. See the logic? Your father desires, takes pleasure in giving you, giving you freely the kingdom, eternal life. So, so, therefore, sell, give. Live with abandon in the cause of love. You don't need to be greedy. You don't need to be afraid. He's got your back all the way to the end. He's going to provide every need. Seek the kingdom first and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That is everything you need, you get. <coughs> That's not prosperity teaching because you may get prison. John the Baptist got everything he needed to the end. He was a great man. <coughs> Christ never left him. God never left him. The Father never left him. He had everything he needed. You'll have everything you need. But if you start gathering up treasures on earth, you will be saying, my Father's not enough for me. These promises of Jesus bought with his blood, I don't think I can count them. Or here's another one, another way that the fatherhood of God that we have by faith alone through Jesus works. Ask and it will be given you. This is Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you who has a son? It's going to draw an analogy now, right? Which of you who has a son who asks for bread would give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, this is Jesus promising now, how much more will your father, I bought his fatherhood for you, you trust me, you get that, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you believe me and him? And then he says, therefore. This is verse 12 of Matthew 7. Therefore, or your version might say, so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. Get it? That's risky. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, make that the measure of how you treat others. This is one of the hardest commands in the world. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Because we all know what... I, I, <laughs> I want everybody to serve me. 
I don't want them to hurt me. I want them to compliment me. I want them to give me surprises. And Jesus says, I know that's the way you are. So I'm making that the measure of how you treat people. It's an absolutely slaying command. And the way Jesus says it's possible is, don't you know that you have a father who when you ask, he gives? When you seek, you find him. And when you knock on his door, he opens. And just like you won't give a snake to your son if he asks for bread, he won't give you anything bad for you when you ask him, but only what's good for you. Therefore, treat others like you'd like to be treated. See the connection? Obedience to those first commands, which means receive, rest, enjoy, know you're cared for, Blood-bought fatherhood is all over you from an omnipotent God. Therefore, take some risks and love others like crazy in ways you couldn't any other way if he hadn't got your back over here and promised to take care of you all the way to the end. One last way it works. The first was we have the father whose care for us, whose omnipotent care for us was secured by the blood of Jesus so that if we trust uh, whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me, and therefore I have, I have a Savior, I have an omnipotent Father. He'll meet all my needs, and therefore I can treat others way better than I think I could otherwise because he will take care of me when they don't. And I can just overflow, overflow with love to others. Oh, if the world, if the world of the church would be this way. Here's the second one. Our great reward in heaven is the person of Christ and is secured by the work of Christ and unleashes God-glorifying love. It's one passage. So let me say it again. We have a reward. It's coming. Right now, we know in part. We see in the glass darkly. Jesus is beautiful to us. He's satisfying to us. He he vindicates himself as our our friend and our Savior and our Lord again and again by the way he helps us. But we see so little of him now, so little. And one day, face to face, he prays in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me might be with me to see my glory. So one day we're going to see him face to face and that will be totally satisfying and he will be with us forever. There'll be no more sinning on our part and no more cloudiness between us and him and we will be totally, I mean totally satisfied. Unlike anything here could satisfy. Now that's the reward and here's the way it works to produce radical obedience to the impossible commands. Of Jesus. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against me falsely, against you falsely, on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward. So the ground of your present rejoicing in pain and persecution and rejection and slander. Somebody slandering you today? Did the wife say something that you don't think is true? Your kids say something disrespectful, a colleague spreading rumors, church not honoring. 
Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, here's my question. Which is harder, to rejoice when you're slandered and persecuted and reviled and lied about, whether somebody near or far, or to pray for the enemies who do that? Which is harder? This is harder. Because this is something I can decide to do whether I feel like it or not. God bless those enemies I hate. I can, I can say that. I could even mean it. I could even mean it probably. I think I could. I don't feel any affection for them at all, but I'm told that I should want them to be saved and to join me in heaven. So I'm asking for that. But when I face off with them at the office, just the emotions are just... But this says over here, do the impossible. Rejoice in their slander, in the context of their slander. Not that the slander is good, but you're rejoicing. When that slander and that persecution is coming, you're rejoicing. That's impossible. Unless the logic of this text works. So the key is the reward, and that's the first eight or ten commandments. I'm offering myself to you. Be born again. Repent and recognize me for who I am. Believe in me. Trust me. Come to me. Drink from me. Eat from me. Get used to me. I'm totally satisfying in the midst of pain. And someday we'll be together. So I assume that if he says over here, Pray for those who persecute you. And he says over here, rejoice in that persecution. And this is harder and it's enabled by confidence in the reward. That's the way this would be enabled. Which means love for our enemies flows from confidence in our reward. Which leaves me one last observation that sort of brings it all together for me. And we'll stop. If you keep reading in Matthew 5... It goes like this. So he just said in verse 12 that uh, so persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand that they might give light, give it, that it might give light to all in the house. Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. This is where we started. God glorifying obedience. And now he's just moved from you're being persecuted. You've got an unbelievably great all-satisfying reward in heaven that you've tasted now. Therefore, you are rejoicing now in persecution. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine in good deeds, like love, loving your enemy, and God will be glorified. Now, here's my last question. What's the salt and the light? Or better say, what's the, the tanginess and the brightness of the Christian life? that cause people to see it and give glory to God rather than you? It can't just be the good deeds because 
Unbelievers stop and help people change a tire when it's cold. And unbelievers build hospitals and unbelievers do all kinds of philanthropic things. Raw good deeds are ambiguous. Well, what is it then? I would argue that the flow of the thinking from verse 11 to 16 suggests it's your inexplicable joy in persecution while you do good deeds. The world can taste this and it cannot explain it. Your kid was just born disabled profoundly. Your own health is in jeopardy. Your husband has just been given notice and it all happened within a few months. And you are bringing things to me that I need and you seem to be helped by something I can't explain in the joy that is sustained in your life. It isn't the soup that she brought that is the light. It's the whole context of what makes you tick? What? Where is your reward? If it's not in your kid and it's not in your husband and it's not in your health, where is your reward? Rejoice in me. And out of that indomitable confidence in the reward that my work secures, Jesus says, my work secures and is my presence. So now we're at the work and present, the person of Jesus, back where we started. My work secures this reward. My presence with you is that reward. Out of that, render God-glorifying obedience to the command to love people. And in doing that, you will find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Until we're born again, until we repent, until we come, until we taste, until we rest, until we delight, until we're satisfied in Christ as our reward the burdens will feel heavy. But if we find this kind of joy, Matthew 5, 12, if our eyes are opened, then we will say with Jesus, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I deeply thank you for Christ, his person as infinitely beautiful, attractive, and satisfying, more than an iPad, more than a good marriage, more than faithful children, more than a cancer-free body, more than a successful ministry. You alone are the satisfying reward of the human heart.
And I thank you for teaching us that that's the pathway to obedience. There's no other way. Every other way is legalism or despair. So grant to your people here a deeper repentance, a deeper coming, a deeper believing, a deeper abiding, a deeper loving that comes from really being born of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.